How will the DSM-4 redefine alcohol abuse and dependence, and how will this impact the patients we treat? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. Joining me today, Dr. Mark Willenbring, Clinical Professor of Psychiatry at George Washington University School of Medicine and Director of the Treatment and Recovery Research Division of the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, part of the NIH. He is also the principal author of the NIAAA publication, Helping Patients Who Drink Too Much, a clinician's guide, which is widely used by healthcare professionals to help their patients. Dr. Willenbring, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. How will the DSM-5 redefine alcohol abuse and dependence, and how will this impact the patients that we treat in our practices? Well, we actually haven't redefined alcohol dependence and abuse. Uh, I think what's happening here is that new information based on research that's been done here suggests that alcohol dependence is a substantially different disorder than we have thought previously. We still use a DSM-4 criteria for diagnosing abuse and dependence, although DSM-5 is currently under consideration and development, and that's expected to be available in 2012. I do expect there will be changes in the diagnosis in DSM-5. Can you help all of our listeners kind of all get on the same page and do some current definitions of, uh, let's just start with abuse, alcohol abuse? Under DSM-4, Alcohol abuse refers to alcohol use that results in certain tangible adverse consequences on a repeated basis. By far the most common one is physically hazardous use, and the most common form of physically hazardous use is drinking and driving. There are other criteria for the diagnosis, and that includes interpersonal problems, legal problems, problems with keeping a job or participating as a student, or functioning as a parent, but typically those latter criteria are only met in people who have really pretty severe drinking problems. And how about the definition of dependency? Dependence is what most people call alcoholism. And alcohol dependence is characterized by an impairment of control. So the earliest symptoms are setting limits and going over them, saying, I'm only going to have a couple drinks tonight on my way home from work, and then having six or eight, or saying, I'm only going to have a couple at the party and then getting drunk. Second uh, early symptom is a persistent desire to quit or cut down and an inability to do so. As the disorder progresses, people start to spend more time uh, drinking rather than doing other activities, and eventually they may give up other activities that do not involve drinking, even things they used to be interested in and involved in. That sort of develops in the middle uh, or moderate level of severity. When it gets very severe, people develop more tolerance, that is, they need a lot more alcohol to get the same effect, and they have withdrawal symptoms like shaking, sweating, nausea, uh, insomnia, and anxiety when they do quit or cut down, or they have it in the morning, and uh, a particularly good example of that is, is actually drinking in the morning for the relief of withdrawal symptoms. But that only occurs, again, in the most severe stages. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like alcohol really becomes their entire focus of their relationship in life, that uh, all everything else falls by the wayside and their whole day really focuses around their drinking. That's true in its most extreme form. What's changed, though, is that we have a lot more information now on milder forms. There are different forms of alcohol dependence. They're not all so severe. In the past, we've typically studied people who have been in treatment programs 
the average person coming into a treatment program is about 40 years old mm -hmm. and has been ill for 20 years or 25 years. And we know a lot about them, but they turn out to be a... A tip of the iceberg. They, well, uh, in, in, well, maybe the bottom of the iceberg. Uh, right. <laughs> but in a sense, you're right. Uh, that is that the bulk of people, actually, the, the broad majority of people who develop alcohol dependence, develop more mild forms, and, and are really quite functional. And there appear to be different subtypes uh, of alcohol dependence. That was actually my next question. Is there something known as a functional alcoholic? And is it okay if they are not uh, causing damage to their family, their job, or themselves? It's certainly not okay, because at the very least, they're putting themselves at uh, elevated risk for uh, a variety of adverse outcomes, health outcomes, mental health outcomes, and things like uh, the social outcomes you mentioned. The subtypes are these. Basically, about one-third of people who develop alcohol dependence develop it when they're young, between the ages of 18 and 25, and almost all of them basically get over it without formal treatment or professional treatment by the time they're about 25 or 30. So they'll have some symptomatic drinking for a few years. So it burns out when they get married. They, they, yeah, well, they tend to grow out of it, if yeah. you will, or, or grow up. If and they're lucky. They, if they're the lucky third. If they're the lucky third. And then about 40% develop alcohol dependence in midlife. The average age is around 35. This is a particularly common pattern in women. And they have a moderate form what I mean by that is that they are often are very functional. And if you think about it, you know, the last thing a person's going to be, you know, letting go of is their job and, and their families. And that does occur in the extreme forms. But in most cases, that's not what happens. But that doesn't mean people aren't suffering. And it doesn't mean that they like what's going on. You know, being dependent is not fun. It's not pleasurable. There's nothing pleasurable about it because typically by that time, Drinking ceases to be pleasurable. It, it's become compulsive. So people are generally not happy with it. The good news is that when you add up this 30% and 40%, it turns out that 72% of people who develop alcohol dependence in their lifetime have a single episode lasting on average about three or four years. And then they get well, and it, they don't have another recurrence. So that's really the good news is that most people get over alcohol dependence. And so this chronic relapsing form, which is the most severe form, and the one we typically think of when we think of alcohol dependence, uh, actually only occurs in about a quarter of people who develop dependence. That's news to me, and it's actually pretty good news. What do you think as a society or even as a medical community, what are the differences that how we've defined alcohol dependence and abuse in the past, and what's going to change in the future how we look at it? I think the biggest change is the recognition that there's this range of severity, that not everybody who becomes dependent develops this, this really serious uh, and, and relapsing form of the illness. So as you said, like 72% of them will really kind of uh, snap out of it after a few years. They will have a single episode and not recur. Now, that doesn't mean that they shouldn't be treated. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think most of them would like to be treated and would like to stop earlier. One of the major implications of all of this is that we need to be intervening uh, at a much earlier stage and providing treatment for a much broader spectrum uh, of people than we currently do. Doctor, when you looked at that 40% that turned out to be mostly uh, women in their midlife years, were you able to break it down? Were women that were 
single less likely to uh, start drinking than women that had kids at home driving them crazy? No, it's not that simple. Actually, it's, it's, not that there, it's not a majority of women. Alcohol dependence is still significantly more common among men than among women, although the gender gap has been decreasing somewhat in recent years. Even in the midlife group, there are more men in there than there are women. Okay. But the etiology of that is complex. It often develops in the context of a series of life stresses, but not always. People with a midlife onset are more likely to have depression or anxiety disorders in addition to having alcohol dependence. That may or may not be etiologically significant. But again, most of them are quite functional throughout the period. And, and what's really important is that they are mostly employed or they are in a household where the, the, you know there's an employed breadwinner and they typically have health insurance. That means that they have access to general health care. And even though most people are very reluctant to think about entering a rehabilitation program, which is what we typically think of as treatment, we think that people will be much more likely to accept treatment that could be provided by their family doctor or if they're already seeing a psychiatrist for depression or anxiety uh, by a, a general psychiatrist. All right, so I am this person's general physician and then they come to me and they are in that three to four year period where they are dependent. What do I offer them besides going to AA or rehab? Well, now we have four medications that we know are effective in treating alcohol dependence uh, and they are effective at about the same level as antidepressants are in treating depression uh, in outpatients. What I foresee as the way to get treatment to a broader spectrum of people, to these more functional people who have access to physicians, would be very similar to what's happened with depression. You know, 35 years ago, to get treatment for depression, you almost had to be hospitalized. Treatment was not very popular, but not very pleasant, only provided by psychiatrists in a very small proportion. Only the most severely affected people with depression were ever treated. After the introduction of Prozac and then other uh, similar kind of medications, however, there was a sea change in how depression was treated. And now, uh, most people who receive treatment for depression mm-hmm. from, receive a prescription for a medication yeah. and some brief counseling from their general physician. Right. Have you, have you um, come up with any statistics or research that alcohol is a gateway drug, like they used to teach us that marijuana was the first step to going to cocaine and heroin? I think where that concept makes the uh, most sense is in the sense of the early onset variety of alcohol dependence. The other third we hadn't talked about, this most severe third, typically has onset in the mid-teens, about 15. So it happens pretty early. They're much more likely to have multiple risk factors. They have a family history of alcohol dependence or other drug addiction. There's often a family history of mental illness. And these are children and adolescents who have other problems as well. And in particular, they have conduct problems. They have what we call behavioral under control. So they have trouble controlling their impulses. They tend to get into trouble. They tend not to do as well in school. And it turns out that these risks are general risk for a variety of of disorders, including alcohol dependence, but also other substance abuse and dependence for cigarette smoking, for truancy and for getting into trouble with the law for school failure, and for other mental illnesses such as anxiety and depressive disorders. So in that sense, early drinking, especially heavy drinking, like before the age of 14, 
is probably an indicator of a kid who's really at risk for having a whole slew of problems. It's not so much that, that alcohol is a gateway that, that you start with alcohol and it's because of that you move into these other things. It's more that these are kids who are at risk for multiple disorders and almost all of them who get into it with alcohol also, for example, are smokers and also smoke a lot of marijuana. Well, Dr. Mark Willenbring of the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, thank you very much for talking with me. My pleasure. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157. If you'd like to comment or listen to our full library of on-demand podcasts, please visit our website at reachmd.com. And once there, please register with the promo code RADIO, and we'll give you six months free streaming for your home or office. You can also reach us by phone with your comments or suggestions at 888-MD-XM-157. Thanks for listening.